and welcome back to this week's Eurofocus Football Podcast. On this week's episode, I'm discussing Antonio Conte and where his time at Spurs has gone wrong and what seems almost an inevitability uh, of his departure. Arsenal's title chances and a preview of the Champions League quarterfinals and how all of these sides shape up leading into the international break. So Antonio Conte, where did it go wrong? So I think if you look back to his when he first uh, joined the club, really, it never seemed like the correct fit from day one. I think many of you can agree with that. We, we saw his past, his past comments about Spurs, obviously his connections to Chelsea. And I think in general, that's what I'm trying to talk about today is his sort of tactical outlook and how I don't think it's really suitable for the modern game, especially for a club like Tottenham. His rant the other day, I'm, I'm pretty sure everyone, everyone has seen that. Uh, it seemed very calculated to me. I think whilst he said some things that did ring true to a lot of supporters, and I think a lot of people have agreed uh, with what he said about Tottenham's squad, but it, it seemed more of a calculated uh, come and sack me plea. As I say, it did seem extremely calculated. And after their exit uh, in the Champions League against Milan, uh, it's, I think his, his departure is all but confirmed for the summer. But these, these comments suggest that he does one out now. But I think... The argument that I'm going to say is that do Conte's tactics work for a side that want to be winning trophies and winning titles? Obviously, we've seen in recent years that his uh, pragmatic style, his sort of conceding control of the ball, which does make other teams more vulnerable to high-quality chances because you are going to have more high-quality chances with counter-attacking scenarios, whilst it does funnel out the other side of the other team effectively. But... But at the same time, it's very outdated in the modern game. We saw Lille a few years ago win the title in, uh, in Ligue 1 uh, with this style, but they did sort of really regress towards the end of the season and were almost at full retreat, really, in terms of just how deep the block was getting. But I think this it's a very sort of contextual scenario where in the Premier League nowadays, you look at the top sides, you look at your Manchester City, you look at Arsenal, they're sides who can sustain attack after attack after attack. These sides, they're not as reliant on transitional elements. And to be a top side, that you simply cannot be reliant on these transitions like Spurs have been. We saw they were flying at times last season. But as the coaches in the Premier League now, we see even lower down the table, uh, Roberto De Zerbi's Brighton is somebody I'd like to touch on in a moment. But the coaches and the level of personnel across the Premier League is at such a high level in terms of talent and ability where... Teams know how to play against these low blocks. We see that the low block has almost been adapted and Roberto De Zerbi is almost an evolved version of Antonio Conte where it is the Italian style of sort of transitional football and playing on a counter-attack. But De Zerbi's side are not just excellent at this. They're also excellent on the ball and in biting these presses, in biting these um, elements where they can cause a transition, which has been why he's been so successful at uh, also Sassuolo over at Shakhtar Donetsk in uh, Ukraine and also now at Brighton which we're seeing in the Premier League and their, their main focus is to attack quickly and efficiently however this approach to Conte's style is very different we see these styles across Europe and in the Premier League you can play pragmatic football you can funnel out other sides but it's impossible to sustain this at top level where sort of as I say with City and Arsenal where 
sustaining attack after attack after attack sees them so capable of beating a low block, which means that for Conte's style, we saw in their loss against Wolves and Leicester where, yes, they created chances, but these chances were little, very low quality chances, shots from distance, no real efforts inside the box. And even against Sheffield United, against Milan in the Champions League, where it's, it's very boring, it's very mundane football. And it's the it is a very systematic approach where you are relying on counter-attacking scenarios, which we saw in their win against Manchester City earlier in the season. We saw it multiple times at the end of last season. But when a side plays against you in the same in the same vein as we saw again with Julian Lopetegui at, at Molyneux when Spurs lost one nil, uh, Lopetegui completely uh, changed the game at half time. He switched to the same system as Conte, and Spurs looked bewildered. They looked as if they almost didn't have a clue how to break Wolves down. And for a side with such attacking talent, it's there's no wonder that fans aren't happy when when you factor in ticket costs compared to the rest of the league. Spurs have spent so much money on their new stadium. The club as a whole is, some, is not where they want to be in general. But fans don't want to watch this football when good football is becoming so accessible. As I said, you look at the Zerbis Brighton, Unai Emery, Aston Villa now. Football across the league is becoming accessible in terms of the quality that you're watching. And when fans aren't getting what they pay for, you have to factor in why they are going to be so annoyed when, as I say, they're turning out week in, week out. But my, my question about Antonio Conte is not just about his systematic approach. It is... a does he improve players? I know that there are past examples in the past, of, of course, of the likes of Victor Moses, who performed admirably uh, under Antonio Conte at Chelsea. But in terms of the personnel that he requires in a squad, he requires winning mentalities. And that is something that Spurs have simply lacked. Uh, I saw a stat uh, the other day, a tweet from Matt Law. Uh, the quote said, Over the past 20 years, uh, Daniel Levy has hired uh, 10 permanent coaches. Between them, between them have won 61 trophies before and after managing Spurs. And that is... I think it shows in general that, you know, Spurs don't have this winning mentality. They they always have been known to not have that. We saw Gary Neville said about it in the past that when they used to play against Spurs, they were almost a guaranteed victory, a guaranteed three points. And Conte highlighted this in his rant at the weekend that that Tottenham simply aren't where they want to be in terms of this mentality. You see, you saw his side at Chelsea. There's no doubt that he's a top-level elite manager who is a serial winner. But in terms of his squad at Tottenham, has he improved anyone? No. And is that is that more of a mentality thing? All of his past success has come from sides which have had this sort of real steel about them, which has been lacked at Spurs in general, even under Pochettino when they were flying so high. Jose Mourinho, who yet again was criticised for his football. But these aren't bad managers. These are top, top calibre managers who've had success all over their careers. Maybe Pochettino to a lesser extent, of course, than Conte and Mourinho. But when you consider the quality across Spurs' squad, you see the likes of Harry Kane, uh, Son Heung-min, and Dayan Kulusevski. Kulusevski himself has said that he's willing to still work with Conte, uh, despite his rant. But I feel that this Spurs squad really don't have the the sort of real steel about them. We, if there's if the rumours are true about the players wanting Pochettino back, I think that proves to themselves it's almost a case of 
wanting their mate back rather than a manager who will come in and challenge them to really take them to the top level. I like Maurizio Pochettino, but I think he's taken this Spurs group as far as he can. I feel like a real refresh is pr probably needed at Tottenham. I think the players have, d have gone backwards under Conte. There's no, There's been no energy about the side all season long. And even last season when they were flying, there was no real energy or drive about the side. Kulisewski made a massive impact uh, when he signed. Uh, Rodrigo Bentancur, who's missed a lot of this season recently due to his injury. I don't know how long. It'll be a while before he comes back anyway. But as I say, in general, I think I'm very 50-50 on Conte's style where I believe it's outdated and I believe that Conte lacks the adaptability that the likes of De Zerbi, uh, and ex for example, other coaches, Unai Emery, Julian Lopetegui, who have played uh, pragmatic football this season since they've arrived in the league. But pragmatic in a sense where there's still the attacking impetus, pragmatic in a sense where De Zerbi is not looking to control possession, but you can still control possession with, you can control the game, sorry, without having possession of the football, which has been shown with Brighton, how good they've been. Unai Emery's sort of approach of vertical tiki-taka that we've seen at Aston Villa. Maybe not so much as uh, Villarreal. But you can see the style that these managers are trying to implement. But with Conte, there's been no style. There's been no real sort of attacking impetus. There's, there's no identity to Tottenham. And there hasn't been all season long. And that is a worrying thing because who do you bring in next if Conte is to go, which... I seem to have a habit of when recording these podcasts that the news seems to come out after recording, which Conte will probably come out that he's been, that he's been sacked uh, after I record this podcast, and I wouldn't be surprised. But as of now, uh, recording at 10.50 uh, on the 23rd of March, I know that Conte is still in a job. But who do you get in next? I've seen talk about Luis Enrique, uh, Ruben Amarim from Sporting, which I think could be a promising young appointment. Roberto De Zerbi, I don't think. I think he's completely out of the window. I don't see why he would leave Brighton just yet. But with whoever you're going to bring in, they face a massive job to not just turn around the, this group of players' morale, but to turn around the, the, the playing style in general. As I said, the players seem to have gone backwards. They seem there's no real energy. There's no real impetus. There's no identity to the team. And to instill an identity into that team is going to be so, so, so difficult. And this sort of anti-football that has been played needs to be shifted out of the mentality of the squad. And who is the right man to come in to do that? It's a very, very difficult question because, as I say, you look at the other top sides and you look at even Eric Ten Hag's Manchester United, you can see they're very much a work in progress. But you can, you can see what he's trying to achieve with that squad. They have been reliant on uh, transitional elements this season but not as badly as Tottenham have. They still have the quality within the ranks, they still have the right energy about them, still have the right drive. And to reach the levels of the likes of what Arsenal and Manchester City have in the Premier League this season, where their possessional approach allows them to sustain attack after attack after attack, and I'll go on to talk about Arsenal uh, in a few moments when I talk about their title chances. But it's a very, very difficult job at Tottenham. And I think whoever goes in faces a huge, huge challenge. I would like to see Ruben Amorim uh, in the Premier League. I think he's a young, exciting manager uh, with a lot about him. Inexperienced, yes, but he seems to have decent ideas in terms of how he wants to play football. Uh, Luis Enrique, yet again, another manager I'd like to see. 
But yet again, it's how does he instill his tactical output in, in such a short period of time? Yes, they'll have a pre-season, but it's for a squad which is so deflated and almost had every bit of energy sucked out of them. How does he do that? And yet again, it is a massive refresh that will need to be done at Tottenham. And I'm looking forward to seeing a sort of what happens with the club, really. And it's a massive shame, considering their end to last season and the promising signs that they had in terms of signings they made over the summer. But I feel it's very, it's gone very, very sour at Tottenham. And I think there's a lot of elements to blame. Obviously, the players ha have let Conte down at times. But I think his sort of, as I say, his tactical, his, his tactics on the pitch have been very poor. His rant on Saturday felt very, very calculated. It's never seemed like he wanted to be there with all of his contractual drama, with all of all of the comments he's made off the pitch about signings, etc. And I don't... I, it's been the wrong fit from minute one, and I think many would agree with that. And it's, it's a shame, because Antonio Conte is a top-level manager and a likeable manager, I feel. But I think it's a shame, especially for Tottenham fans, to see end like this and where that club goes now. I don't know as of yet, and only time will tell in that instant. But it's, as I say, it's a massive shame. And it's probably best to now move on to their fellow North London rivals, Arsenal. And what a topic to talk about in terms of the two clubs being completely polar opposites in terms of their form and just everything about the clubs, really. So I think it's, it's going to be a bit of a shorter section, this, in terms of just what do I believe that they can win the title. Uh, so, they beat Bournemouth, uh, not Bournemouth, sorry, uh, Crystal Palace 4-1 at the weekend, and I thought they were fantastic yet again this season. They seem to have the, the free-flowing Arsenal that was there earlier in the season back, which did go didn't go missing to an extent, but they did have to win a few games. A few games went down to the wire, such as Bournemouth. There was a few games where they had to really grit their teeth, uh, such as the Bournemouth game, the Manchester United game, where they won uh, late on, thanks to Eddie Nketiah. But... Arsenal have been fantastic. Uh, the system, yeah, again, I've, I think I've spoke about it before in one of the previous podcasts. It's fascinating in terms of the role of the fullbacks. Uh, ben White's excellent sort of defensive nous allows him to act as that sort of third centre back, which allows Inchenko to add this body in, in in midfield alongside Thomas Partey, and it shows you why um, this this sort of box midfield shape is being used by a lot of managers across Europe. Uh, we saw Xavi use it uh, with with Barcelona. Uh, Julian Nagelsmann has, has attempted to make make use of it in recent times at Bayern, and Pep Guardiola as well in terms of his use of Rico Lewis. But I think it's fascinating because you have this sort of two of Zinchenko and Partey, and then you have Erdegaard and Xhaka just in front, and it allows for consistent numerical advantage, which allows them. As when I was speaking about Tottenham, what they lack Tottenham is the ability to sustain attacks. But this numerical advantage allows Arsenal to sustain attack after attack after attack, which is the reason why these top coaches are using uh, different variations of this approach. Uh, we see Xavi use a, a very similar approach with Alejandro Balde, excellent fullback by the way, sort of operating as a as a left winger, uh, with Pedri or Gavi sort of dropping into the midfield to form this sort of box shape. But it allows for a, a variation with the Odegaard and Xhaka where they can almost form a front five 
or operate in the sort of half spaces in between where, where Odegaard has been so effective, which I wrote about last week. And this, as I say, it creates this numerical advantage in the both the midfield and attacking, in attacking-wise, uh, which allows them to consistently you know, recycle the ball high up the pitch. It allows for consistent attacks, which is what has made Manchester City's uh, under Pep Guardiola uh, so successful over the years, where they have this constant uh, numerical advantage, this con the consistent bodies in dangerous areas, which is a massive thing, especially in the modern game, where pragmatic approaches such as Antonio Conte's uh, football, it's allowing the top sides to break down these sides much easier, as we saw with Arsenal against Crystal Palace and Manchester City across the years, where even when sides sit back and put bodies behind the ball, you still, you'd still put money on the fact that Arsenal or Manchester City will break you down. Uh, and Mikel Arteta himself, an obvious leader, uh, um, if you've watched the All or Nothing series on Amazon, he's an interesting uh, motivator with some of the things that he says, but he possesses um, brilliant ideas as a coach tactically, and I think that's been, that's been seen for years. He's a smart and methodical manager. He's somebody who, the players, even in during Arsenal's uh, bad run of form, uh, in, in a couple of seasons ago, and even the start of last season, you can see the, the trust that the players have in Arteta. Uh, he's, a, as I say, a brilliant motivator, somebody that players want to play for, almost a Pep Guardiola disciple, which I've seen named before, but excellent 4-1 win at home too, obviously managerless Crystal Palace. But as mentioned when talking about Spurs, that Arsenal have really evolved into a side who can break down and dominate opposition across the division, which is, yet again, something which wasn't always the case under Arteta, but you could see what they were trying to achieve. And I think that's, that also links to Eric Ten Hag Manchester United, where it took Mikel Arteta a couple of years to get to this to get to this stage where he he was able to change his side from a, a pragmatic counter-attacking side into this possession-based team, which is scintillating to watch at times. And do I think they will win the title? I think it's they've got some very tough games, and with obviously not long left in the season, but it's. What's remaining is just more and more cup finals, as Mikel Arteta says. And to be honest, I just can't see Arsenal losing. I really, really can't. I, if I was to put money on the game at City, I think City might pip them at the Etihad. And that's the only loss that I can see Arsenal, Arsenal having between now and the end of the season. I think they've been defensively brilliant all across the pitch. And this Arteta's system has not just been spot on. But the, the players' mentality, we saw their their winner against Bournemouth, the fantastic winner from Reese Nelson, how much it meant to the group of players. There's a real a real element of the players wanting to die for Arsenal, which hasn't been there in recent years. And Mikel Arteta has formed a brilliant group and a brilliant group who want to play for Arsenal, which is a massive, massive has a massive impact in, in terms of on both on and off the pitch. The club is very united at the moment. And I can really see them going on to lift the Premier League. And I think it would be brilliant for the league in general to have a new winner that we haven't seen in a, in a long time. And yeah, I, I do think they're going to... I do. I just think they're going to do it. And I think it would be, as I say, very nice for the league to see and set it up brilliantly whilst we see the likes of Liverpool, Manchester United, uh, Chelsea all sort of coming back to their form, hopefully next season, to see a multiple-team title race, which I think will be excellent for the country as a whole but Arsenal have fascinated me and I really 
I believe that they will go on to win the league and I think Mikel Arteta has to take so much credit for that. So, so much credit. So on the final segment of the podcast, uh, I think it's only right to talk about the Champions League draw and what a draw we've been given. Uh, obviously, we've got the international break at the moment. Uh, the first tie is to be played in, I believe it's the 4th of April. Uh, so first match uh, to talk about Benfica versus Inter. Very difficult match uh, to call. Benfica, one of my favourite sides across Europe this year. Uh, very impressive under Roger Schmidt. Uh, if you saw my article it a few months ago, uh, they're an intense attacking side. Variations of movement and patterns of play across uh, the um, front four. Enzo Fernandez, massive loss. However, Chiquinho has filled in for Enzo uh, admirably. Uh, yet again, if you saw my articles online on, on, the, on the website, you'll know that myself, I am a massive fan of Enzo Fernandez, one of my favourite midfielders in the world. But yet again, Chiquinho has filled in for him admirably uh, since uh, Enzo's, Enzo's departure. Uh, Florentino Luis has been excellent at the base of their midfield, which has allowed Chiquinho to sort of fit in alongside him. But there's, what I like about this Benfica side is that there is a mixture of both youth and experience. We see Antonio Silva, one of the best young defenders in Europe, being fantastic. Uh, same for Gonzalo Ramos at centre-forward. Uh, yet again, possibly the most exciting uh, centre-forward talent in Europe alongside pro probably Victor Rosimen at the moment. But then again, you see the likes of João Mario, Rafa Silva, uh, Alejandro Grimaldo, all bringing this sort of experience and sort of some of the players in their prime. And it's, it's massively important for Roger Schmidt's side. Currently sitting 10 points clear of arch-rivals Porto uh, in the Premier League. But, yeah, again, I think Benfica are a, a brilliant side. I think there's some an attacking side. They're, they're looking to always play on the front foot and they were excellent against Club Brugge in the Champions League. I'd recommend you watch the highlights of not just them, but possibly Gonzalo Ramos because what a player he's becoming and blossoming into. As for Inter, two losses in a row uh, to Spezia and Juventus and they're in a run of poor form, to be honest. They're arguably fortunate to get into the quarterfinals. Porto didn't really show enough against them, arguably, and they yeah, apart from the final stage of the match, Inter were very comfortable, albeit being very poor. It's currently sitting third in Serie A, but they are 21 points behind leaders Napoli. But what I would like to mention is that Inzaghi has always excelled in cup competitions, uh, winning two Coppa Italias over the course of his career. Uh, the squad is not at its sort of title-winning level like it was under Conte, but there are still multiple world-class level talents within the squad, which is... For me, it's why I think that they are a side that if they were to get through this round, I wouldn't put it past them getting all the way to the final because they've been excellent at times this season. One of the only sides to beat Napoli. So they might thrive under a sort of two-legged uh, two tie. Midfield is, is very key for Inter though. Uh, when when Barella plays well, Inter play well. And that, is, that has been the case sort of all season really. Same can be said for Hakan Chalanolu, who's been sort of been deployed in a deeper role uh, under Inzaghi than in previous seasons when he was sort of at Milan. Uh, he operates in the sort of centre of the midfield. He's allowed to work effectively due to the back three and how impressive the back three have sort of been. They sit well in general. But to be fair with Inter, as I say, they're a side who sort of thrive in cup competitions. They've been very poor and inconsistent in Serie A this season. 
they had a decent run of form after the World Cup, beating Napoli, uh, beating Milan twice in uh, the Supercoppa and also in the league. Lautaro Martinez has been key for them. They've got an ageing squad, Ed, Edin Dzeko not, not at the same heights he was. Romelu Lukaku has been hit and miss due to injury. But it, it's a Inter are a very strange, very strange one. But over the course of two legs, despite into sort of special well, Inzaghi's sort of speciality in cup competitions, I do believe that Benfica will be more more ruthless than what Porto were over the course of two legs, and I think this will see uh, Benfica through. Which we then move on to Milan versus Napoli, which will be. One of these sides will play Benfica if they were to go through. An all-Italian side, uh, tie, sorry. Milan themselves uh, reign in Serie A champions against arguably the best side in Europe this season and champions in waiting. It's been a very poor sort of title retention from Milan. As good as Napoli have been, Pioli would have liked to have seen his side a lot closer to them over the course of the season. He's, he's chopped and changed in recent months. He had a very, very poor poor run of form following on from the World Cup, which all stemmed from a 2-2 draw at home to Roma where uh, they conceded two light goals. But following on from that, they lost to Inter twice, both 3-0 and 1-0. A 4-0 loss away at Lazio. And then the 5-2 thumping at home against Sassuolo was very, very much the icing on the cake. They did regain a bit of form with sort of the win against Tottenham sandwiched in the middle. And did secure a good result beating Atalanta ever since then. They haven't won in three. There are questions surrounding Pioli's future. But he has had to tinker a- across the season because of injury. Uh, we saw Mike Magnon was out for a period of time. Which saw Tatarasanu uh, play and drop a few clangers uh, during that time I must admit. Tamori's been out for a, for a few games. But I think a, a lot of key players have also not lived up to their very high standards of last season. Rafa Leao, as good as he has been at spells, he hasn't had the same impact for who was the best player in Serie A last year. Charles de Catalaro has not lived up to the hype uh, that, that was sort of expected of him. He has received limited minutes on the pitch, however, but yet again, there have been a lot of players across this Milan side that haven't lived up to expectations of both last season and expectations from signing in the summer. And... It's a strange one, really, because it's difficult to pinpoint where they've gone wrong. There's not really the same intensity about them. But also, as I say, Pioli has had to chop and change. He moved to a back three in multiple matches, and that didn't seem to favour them. But from a Napoli standpoint, there aren't enough superlatives to describe how good they've been this season. For a side which was ripped apart, with key names and experienced heads all leaving the side, such as Insignia, Mertens and Kalavukula Bali, the side has been, they've been replaced and the side has been rebuilt impeccably. So Zambo Anguisa has been an excellent signing in midfield. Uh, Kim Min Jae has been an absolute rock at the back and recently been described by uh, Luciano Spalletti as the best defender in the world, which is not too far of a stretch. I think he's been absolutely superb. Victor Ozyman has fully burst onto the scene this season. And his partnership with uh, Kvartskalia has been absolutely unbelievable. 60 goals and assists between the two. I think I spoke about Ozyman before and his how excellent he is in, in the box. And he's, he's, he's not the... It's difficult to say this without 
saying them as if I'm criticising him because I'm not. He's not the best on the floor in terms of the likes of Harry Kane, etc. But in terms of his all-round game, I think he's a fantastic, world-class centre-forward who fits into almost any side in Europe. And in some of the goals he scored with his head, the one against Frankfurt, absolutely fantastic. And Kvartskalia has been an absolute revelation on the left-hand side for Spalletti. You know, he's direct, he's got bags of pace, and he's one of the best dribblers in the world. If you look at his, some of his goals this season, some of his assists, and that game against Liverpool where he sort of really announced himself onto the scene, where they, they thumped Liverpool uh, in Naples that night, he was fantastic. And he's, he's he's gone from strength to strength all season. There's been links to top clubs across Europe, but I don't see why he'd leave Napoli as of yet. There's a real project going on there. And as well as their unbelievable starting eleven, they possess brilliant depth and options. Evan Lozano, Raspadori, Politano. They all provide brilliant, proven options to fill space on the wing, as well as Tongi and Dombele in the midfield, who doesn't start every game. But yet again, it's more, more covering a good option. He scored his first goal at the weekend, just gone, against Torino. For me in this tie, I can't see anything other than a Napoli victory over two legs, which will see them face Benfica, in my opinion, in, in the uh, semi-finals, which is a tie that I'm certainly looking forward to, probably my two favourite sides alongside Arsenal to watch in Europe this season. Obviously, it's easy to say that with, the, with them all being top of the league, but the football they're all playing, I'm very excited for that tie. And as I say, I can't, with Milan's form in recent times and what has been a very poor season compared to last, I can't see them causing Napoli any troubles over two legs. We see Chelsea against Real Madrid, the first leg at the Bernabeu. And this is a... I wrote an article about Real Madrid last week. It's... Are they favourites to win the tournament again? It was a strange El Clasico performance the other day, to be, to be perfectly honest. It turned into a very sort of basketball-style game towards the end, where whilst Barcelona had the vast majority of... Um, the big chances throughout the game. If Marco Asensio's goal is not ruled out in the in the dying moments, the game will be described as a sort of classic Ancelotti Madrid performance. However, obviously this was ruled out for a very very marginal offside, which then saw Frank Kessier uh, win the game very late on for Barcelona. But I think it was a, it, it showed sort of football brilliantly that that uh, El Clasico performance did, where the two sides I thought were brilliant, both two very distinct styles. Uh, very different on the day, but obviously Barcelona come out on top. And they've had a relatively poor season in, in La Liga Madrid by what they, the standards they set last year. And I think La Liga itself has been very poor, which is the reason why Barcelona are, are not a very good side, of course. But there shouldn't be this points gap that they've sort of amassed over the course of the season. But Madrid, they're, they're obviously Champions League specialists. There's always a, an element of inevitability at Madrid progressing. We saw them when they went a goal down, or two goals down at Anfield, sorry. There was a classy display following on, scoring five at Anfield, and then a very very professional and classy display again at the Bernabeu, which saw them go through. For Chelsea, though, they will be quietly confident. Uh, the signs that the new signings are starting to um, blend in. Enzo Fernandez, as I mentioned, you all know how much of a fan, I, fan of him I am. He started to be really impressive in midfield. His assist against Leicester was fantastic. And Joao Felix, who's been massively impressive since his debut. I think he's been one of Chelsea's shining lights throughout their run of poor form. 
but I spoke about it on the pod uh, following on from the Dortmund game. There have been massive improvements uh, following on from their switch to a back five. Rhys James has been excellent since his, since his return and it allows the wide men to operate in the half spaces where they are so effective as we saw with Sterling against Dortmund, uh, Joao Felix, and it allows uh, Kai Havertz to have bodies around him, which is something which he needs for somebody who's not a natural centre-forward. Uh, yes, I think they'll probably need to go for a centre-forward in the, in the summer, but I think for Chelsea, they will be, as I say, quietly confident with the fact that this is the this is the, the main the main goal for them now this season. We saw Potter the other day um, talking about winning the Champions League in a, in a fan event uh, held by a Chelsea supporters group, I believe. And this is now what is almost left for Chelsea in in the last stages of the season. But as I say, I, I carry sort of small. A small thought that they could they could do it. They could beat Madrid over the course of two legs. But then again, my head is sort of leaning towards Real Madrid in terms of the fact that they're they're, they're sort of maybe favourites for the tournament, but more so just specialists over the course of knockout football. Which leads me to go on to say that Real Madrid will be the winners of this performance and maybe even the Champions League. And I'm going to say now, I'm going to... Yeah, I'm going to go for it now that Real Madrid will win the Champions League overall. And on that note, I'll move on to City, Manchester City versus Bayern Munich. Uh, City, been in unbelievable goal-scoring form in recent weeks. Uh, Erling Haaland has withdrawn from the Norway squad, though. Which, will he be ready for this fixture on? Nothing's really been said about this injury yet. Because we have seen quite a few players... A withdraw from their national team squad so what effect is this going to have is this an actual is it more of a get them back fit for the, the latter games of the season or is it an actual injury we don't know only time will tell we saw him score ridiculous five goals against Leipzig last week but it, as for City there's there's not much to say about them tactically I think it's clear and evident what, what we've seen from Pep Guardiola's side over the last uh, six years is it six years six or seven years since um he joins City. I think we all we all know what we're going to get from Manchester City now. We know we're going to get overloads, possession-based football and goals. And I believe that you can sort of draw comparisons between Pep Guardiola and Julian Nagelsmann in, for Bayern. Because as impressive as, as Bayern have been un, un, at times under Nagelsmann, they very much are a work in progress, as what I mentioned on the article last week. But similar to Pep, in I think... Both top-class managers and Pep himself, arguably the greatest manager of all time. They can both be accused of having a sort of soft underbelly at times in terms of in big games, possible overthinking moments, possible moments of picking the wrong selection. Something sort of the weekend for Bayern Munich where they lost to Xabi Alonso's Bayer Leverkusen, which did see uh, Borussia Dortmund go two, two points clear at the top with uh, Bayern's next fixture, actually is when they travel to Signal Iduna Park in De Classic, which possibly their most important game of the season to decide the title, arguably. Because they have had a bit of a di difficult season domestically. There's not the same inevitability about Bayern Munich. Uh, Jamal Musiala, um, one of my favourite players across Europe, uh, top of the goal, con goal contributions, 20, uh, 20 goals and assists, uh, followed by Chupa Moting and Serge Gnabry on 13 and 12. Because replacing Robert Lewandowski was always going to be difficult. And this will be probably the top priority in the summer. But Nabry has never really fully established himself as a number nine. 
whilst it has been his sort of main demand since his signing from Werder Bremen. But Bayern Munich are intriguing tactically. Uh, they're 3-2-5 in build-up and the bodies they get forward. And Nagelsmann is a flexible and very tactically astute manager. But I believe that he can be naive at times. And I believe that over two legs, I think City might just beat them. It'll be a fantastic two legs. I think there'll be goals from both sides. And I don't. it, it won't be easy for Manchester City. I can't see it being a, a route. But I believe that over two legs, I think City might just do them. I, just, I think my head's just telling me that City are further along the line in their development of the squad in terms of them being at the top level. I don't think either of these sides will go all the way, I must admit. I think that Madrid, I think that Real Madrid will beat one of these, will beat either of these over two legs, to be perfectly honest with you. It sets up a brilliant, brilliant few ties though, whether we get Real Madrid, Chelsea, City or Bayern all facing each other. There's some excellent ties. As well as on the other side, we've, it's, we've been very blessed with this draw, really. But I'm going to go for Manchester City, just with how I think they're much further along the line of development of their sort of system and their, as I say, the personnel in their squad. Yeah, I'm going to go with Manchester City. I'm, I'm going to have to. But as I say, that I'm, I'm very looking forward to this draw. And that does actually round up all that I have for you this week on the Eurofocus Football Podcast. Next week there will be no pod because it is obviously the international break. But there will be updates on the site. There will be multiple articles coming out on the website in the coming days and before next week, before domestic football returns. Some massive games next week. So thank you very much and I will see you on the podcast in two weeks' time when we return from dom for domestic and European football. Thank you very much, people.